Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're continuing the Julio-Claudian saga. We're nearing the end of Augustus' time as the first emperor of Rome, but we're not there quite yet. Before we get to Emperor Tiberius, it's about time we actually learned where he came from. And along the way, with Tiberius' background, we'll learn a bit about his brother Nero Claudius Drusus, known in most circles as Drusus the Elder. Both young men would become celebrities of the early Roman Empire, which means that we're going to learn a lot about the unstoppable conquering machine that was the Roman military. Tiberius' life will eventually become a tragedy, well, depending on how you look at it, I guess, but first we have to learn about the triumphant hero that would lead Rome in battle against its northern neighbors. And with that, we'll also need to learn a bit about the other European cultures that existed in this time period outside of Rome's previously held territories. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're continuing the saga in the early 1st century BCE in The Brothers Germanicus. <laughs> telling a story about Rome, this background history lesson is going to begin by talking about Germany. Well, technically the region known as Germania that held much of the territory of modern-day Germany. It was also known as Magna Germania, meaning Great Germania, and Germania Libera, meaning Free Germania. Because Rome liked to make naming territories easy, Germania means Land of the Germani. The Germani were a Germanic group of people, wow, shocker who inhabited the area between the Rhine, Vistula, and Danube rivers. However, the Germani people were unlikely to have ever called themselves that. Germani referred to many different tribes with similar cultures. The name for these tribes came to the Romans from the Celtic tribes of Western Europe. The actual meaning of Germani is still attested mostly because no one really knows what language it actually came from. Some notable guesses come from the Old Irish word gar, meaning neighbors, or the word garm, which was the word used to describe the Germani's war cries. That leaves us with Germania meaning land of the neighbors, or land of the screamers. Rome's first written encounters with the Germanic people was with Julius Caesar around the year 50 BCE during his military campaign in Gaul, a region that was mostly modern-day France, Belgium, Switzerland, and Luxembourg. Back in Caesar's day, most of the population living in the south of modern-day Germany were tribes of Celtic people, but not Celtic like you're probably thinking with Ireland. The term Celtic, which we'll probably explain in a later episode, doesn't particularly mean anything concrete in terms of ethnicity or nationality, at least not in the way the Romans used it. Basically, if you weren't Roman or already conquered by Rome, you were a Celt, a Germani, or some other form of barbarian, which in itself is a very loaded term. So if I ever refer to Celtic people later in this episode, it's probably referring to tribes that were living in modern-day Switzerland. Between Caesar's campaigns and Tiberius and Drusus's lives, the Germanic tribes of northern Germania were slowly making their way further south. Instead of fully displacing the local Celts, they assimilated the tribes of southern Germania into a more Germanic lifestyle. It was actually this expansion that led to one of the major wars between Caesar and the local Celts, specifically the Helvetii of Switzerland. Also a side note, but Helvetica, derived from Helvetii, is the Latin name the Swiss sometimes use for their country. 
Caesar would occasionally fight other Germanic tribes during his time as governor of Transalpine Gaul, the part of Gaul on the opposite side of the Alps from Italy. He would even go so far as to cross the Rhine, which was a big deal back then, into the region that was fully occupied by Germanic tribes. After Caesar's campaigns ended, it was just sort of settled that the Romans and their Germanic tribes would never be friends. The Rhine would form the northeastern border of Gaul, marking a very visible separation between the Roman territory and those that lived beyond. There would be the occasional attacks along the border, what with the Germani hoping to move south and the Romans hoping to conquer everything they didn't already own. Even Augustus, when he was still able to go out into battle, would wage a few military campaigns to the north against the Germanic people. But it wasn't until the next generation started joining the military that Rome once more set its sights to the territories north of its borders, and two brothers would rise up to create their own destinies as leaders of the new wave of military expansion. bit about Augustus's wife Livia, the mother of Tiberius and Drusus, but we haven't really talked at all about their father, Tiberius Claudius Nero. And by usual Roman naming conventions, yes, that means Tiberius's name was also Tiberius Claudius Nero. Tiberius the Elder, as he'll henceforth be known, was one of those classic Roman patricians who did a million things within the last couple decades of the Roman Republican period. He was a soldier who served under Julius Caesar during Caesar's civil war against Pompey, serving in Egypt and leading victories against the Egyptian navy. His military triumphs, while not earning him an actual triumph with a capital T, awarded Tiberius the Elder with priesthood. From there, he remained busy by moving out to Gaul where he was tasked with the usual business of conquest and management. And despite his servitude to Julius Caesar, he was a member of the Optimates, the Senate faction opposing Caesar's Popularis faction. When the dictator was assassinated, Tiberius actually spoke up on behalf of the assassins, saying that this was all a very good thing and the Liberatores should be rewarded for their service to the Republic. Well, obviously things would not go well for the Liberatores, but Tiberius, due to his time as one of Caesar's lackeys despite rejoicing in the man's death, was allowed to live. The year after Caesar's death, so in 43 BCE, is probably when Tiberius the Elder and Livia Drusilla married. He was also elected as a praetor, which means he was either a military commander or high-ranking magistrate within the Republic. Only a couple years later, Tiberius the Elder was once more forced to choose sides in a Roman civil war with the Second Triumvirate. Tiberius decided to throw in his lot with Mark Antony. It was around this time that Livia gave birth to Tiberius, the future emperor. Tiberius the Elder moved his family away from Rome in order to avoid the wrath of Octavian. They would be away from the city for three years until Tiberius the Elder finally decided to return his family to their homeland. By this time, Livia was pregnant with their second child. Well, back in Rome, Tiberius and Livia would come to meet Triumvir Octavian. At this time, Octavian was married to a woman named Scribonia, but it's said that he fell in love with Livia right away. From here, Octavian coerced Tiberius the Elder into divorcing his wife. Octavia and Livia were married around the same time that her second child was born, a son named Decimus Claudius Drusus. At the wedding, Tiberius the Elder was put in the role of giving Livia away to Octavian, 
the role usually assigned to the bride's father. Overall, it was probably just a really awkward wedding. After that, the early childhood care of Tiberius and his younger brother fell to Tiberius the Elder. He raised his sons for about five years until his death in 33 BCE. From there, Tiberius and young Decimus would go to live with their mother and their new stepfather. At some point, it's unknown if it was during his childhood or later, Decimus Claudius Drusus would change his name to Nero Claudius Drusus. Both names were actually pretty weird for the time as they were usually cognomen as opposed to prenomen. Also, if you thought at all that maybe Augustus was actually Drusus's father and that's why they got together, Livia was already pregnant before they met. Drusus's son, the future emperor Claudius, made sure to spread that rumor though in order to create a better dynastic line from Augustus to himself. Both Tiberius and Drusus were raised and tutored alongside their stepsister Julia, Augustus's sole biological child, as well as Julia's cousin Marcellus, a man who Augustus at one point hoped to be his successor before he died in what was most likely murder by poisoning. Because they were stepsons of Emperor Augustus, though as I'll always remind you guys, Augustus didn't really think of himself as an emperor, Tiberius and Drusus, as well as Marcellus since he was a blood relative of Augustus, were trained from a young age to learn the ropes of the Roman political circles. Any one of them had the potential to succeed Augustus since there weren't really any rules in place for what would happen upon the emperor's death. I already covered Augustus' succession, so listen to the last Julio-Claudian episode to learn about that if you didn't give it a listen. The boys were given privileges offered to no one else in their peer group. They would be allowed to hold political offices at earlier ages than was usually granted, so Augustus made sure that Tiberius and Drusus were present during important political meetings and parties. Tiberius, at the age of 13, was even allowed to ride beside Augustus during his military triumph after the defeat of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Four years later, Tiberius would become a quaestor, which for our purposes is the lowest ranking magistrate position within the late Republic slash early Imperial period. Basically, you became a quaestor so you could then attain a higher political position in the future. In 20 BCE, Augustus sent his older stepson off east to serve in the military under the command of Marcus Vipsania Agrippa, the emperor's right-hand man. Tiberius was deployed to Armenia for what would be a pretty major military operation at the time. Over the past few decades, the Parthian Empire, the big empire out of Persia that was right next door to Rome's eastern provinces, had stolen several military standards military flags that were rallying points and very important symbols for a Roman legion. After a year, Tiberius was given command of a group of soldiers to take control of Armenia. Armenia was right across the borders of Rome within the Parthian Empire, so taking it, or at the very least making it a client state, would drastically reduce the immediate threat of the Parthians. After further negotiations, Armenia was turned into a neutral state giving Rome that desired breathing room, and the lost standards were retrieved. Sometime around then, or immediately afterwards, Tiberius married Vipsania Agrippina, the daughter of Marcus Agrippa and his first wife Attica. While it was definitely a marriage that would further solidify ties between Augustus and Agrippa, Tiberius and Vipsania were generally thought to have a happy, loving marriage. 
unfortunately, the pair wouldn't get much time to enjoy a peaceful married life. In 16 BCE, Tiberius was elected as Praetor and once more shipped off to war. While Tiberius was away in Pannonia, a region that held lands in modern-day Austria, Hungary, and the northern Balkan states, Drusus was left in Rome to officiate in the place of his older brother. Tiberius successfully suppressed enemy rebels, though Pannonia would not become an official Roman province until almost a decade later. It was also that year that Drusus was married to Antonia Minor, Augustus's niece through his sister Octavia's marriage to Mark Antony. In 15 BCE, Drusus was made a quaestor and was sent to the Alps as a member of the military to fight off bands from Mauritia, a region just north of Italy in modern-day Switzerland and southern Germany. When it became apparent that the Ritai, the people of Risha, weren't going to go down easy, Tiberius was instructed to lend aid to his younger brother. Together, the two brothers defeated the Ritai, gaining proper honors and allowing Rome to annex Risha as a new province. From there, the two brothers stuck with their military paths but moved in opposite directions. Tiberius went on an expedition to explore the path of the Danube River. Meanwhile, Drusus was stationed in Gaul where he would be made Legatus Augusti Pro Praetore, essentially a governor but maintaining the power of a praetor, almost like a commander-in-chief of Gaul. The region Gaul was actually divided into three different provinces, but this position gave Drusus power over all three. He immediately got down to work out west and began a massive infrastructure overhaul. First up, the provinces would need their own unit of measurement. Yeah, Rome had the Roman foot, based on the foot length of Marcus Agrippa, but what if Gaul had its own foot freak who wanted his foot to be the standard unit of measurement? And thus, the Pest Drusianus was born. And at about 33.3 centimeters or 13.1 inches, it was about one and a half inches longer than the standard Roman foot. Drusus made his headquarters in the city of Lugdunum, modern-day Lyon, and established the Concilium Galliarum sometime between 14 and 12 BCE. This council sought to unite all three Gaulish provinces. One of its purposes was to elect a priest from its members to help celebrate festivities for the living god Augustus and the goddess Roma, the personification of Rome. They would be held at the Aratrium Galliarum, aka the Altar of the Three Gauls, which Drusus also commissioned for construction in 10 BCE. These celebrations would be held on August 1st, since that was the perfect day to honor Augustus. Also, I don't think I ever mentioned this, but yes, the month of August was in fact named for Augustus. I could go on a massively long tangent here about the names of the months, for instance before Augustus, the month of August was Sextilis, but I recommend you do that on your own time. I find it interesting, so maybe you will too. After two years of the absolutely riveting mission of exploring the Danube River, it actually was important, but it's not important for this story, Tiberius returned to Rome in 13 BCE. Later that year, his son was born. The child's name at birth was Drusus Claudius Nero, named after his uncle, but he would later become known as Drusus Julius Caesar. Drusus, Tiberius's brother, not his son, would have three children of his own during his tenure as governor of Gaul. In 15 BCE, his wife gave birth to his eldest son, who history now knows as Germanicus but was probably born as Tiberius Claudius Nero, named after his uncle. 
In 13 BCE, the couple gave birth to a daughter, Lavilla, named after her grandmother. And in 10 BCE, on the same day as the inauguration of the Aratrium Galliarum, a second son was born, another Tiberius Claudius Nero, aka the future Emperor Claudius. So yeah, both brothers named their sons after each other. I think that's nice in hindsight, but that's also kinda how Roman names worked back then. Everything seemed to be going quite well for the two brothers. They had both achieved military fame and had loving families. But that all changed with two things. The first was the death of Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. The second was the beginning of the conquest of Germania. So let's start with the fallout of Agrippa's death. We've covered this before so I won't go over everything again, but basically every child vaguely related to Augustus is now viable to become his heir, though not really. Livia, who really wanted her bloodline to succeed Augustus, realized that this was finally Tiberius and Drusus's chance to shine. Because Tiberius was the older brother, things needed to be put in line for him to become a proper heir. In 11 BCE, a year after Agrippa's death, Augustus ordered for Tiberius and Vipsania to divorce. Unlike many political marriages, Tiberius and Vipsania had truly been happy together, so this was a shocking blow to both of them. But because his stepfather was emperor, Tiberius was forced to comply and divorced his wife. Who was to be his new bride? None other than Agrippa's widow and Augustus' daughter, Julia, aka Tiberius's stepsister. Now, there's a whole lot to unpack here. First and foremost, Vipsania was Agrippa's daughter, meaning that Julia was her stepmother. That's a whole level of weird but technically not really gymnastics that we have to navigate. Second, Julia had already tried cheating on Agrippa with Tiberius while her deceased husband was still alive. Tiberius had always refused her advances. Again, he was happy with Vipsania. When Tiberius was finally married to his new wife, he immediately sought out his ex and allegedly cried and begged for her to take him back. When Augustus caught word of his stepson's actions, he put his imperial foot down and arranged things so that the pair could never meet again. Some historians claim that Tiberius and Julia tried to make the best of their new arrangement, though for the most part it seemed like things were bad and only got worse. At some point during their marriage, Julia became pregnant, but their child, a boy, died in infancy. With nothing to hold them together, well, to skip ahead a bit, the couple would end up getting divorced about five years later. And as for Drusus? Well, he was just allowed to keep on living his life, just with the knowledge that if several people died, he would end up being the second emperor of Rome. He got to keep his happy life as the conquest of Germania began. Rome's more recent troubles with the tribes of Germania began around 16 BCE. After Agrippa had spent several years campaigning in Gaul and expanding its borders towards the Rhine, several tribes decided they didn't like the new neighbors, especially once they started crossing over into Germania. After defeating some Roman soldiers, members of the Sicambri, Usipia, and Tecteri tribes crossed the Rhine and found themselves facing the 5th Legion of Rome, the legion stationed in Gaul. 
they defeated the 5th Legion and captured their standard. Around the same time, Augustus had arrived in Gaul. Setting his mind towards revenge and conquest, the Emperor started gathering funds for soldiers, gaining aid from Drusus, who by this point was the governor of Gaul. By 14 BCE, Drusus began building a series of military forts along the Rhine, with Roman historian Florus suggesting he might have built 50 in total, though ancient historians loved to embellish so it was probably much less. Two years later, two Germanic tribes, the Sicambri and the Usipii, invaded Gaul only to be fended off by Drusus's troops. In retaliation, Drusus decided it was finally time to invade Germania. Using canals he had ordered built for this very purpose, the governor of Gaul sailed with his armies until they reached the Ems River. His armies made quick work of the invasion by attacking and conquering the Frisii and Chaucy tribes of northwestern Germania. And side note, that first tribe, the Frisii, are the ancestors of the Frisians, an ethnic group in the Netherlands and northwestern Germany who speak Frisian, the English language's closest surviving linguistic relative besides Scots. Continuing down the Ems, he fought the Bructeri before returning back to Gaul for winter before continuing on to Rome. Drusus returned to his homeland a hero, his achievements were even minted on coins. In honor of his accomplishments, the door to the temple of Janus were closed. Janus was the Roman god of duality, beginnings, ends, gateways, and many other things, and to quickly get back to Roman months, the namesake of January. If the doors to his temple in the city of Rome were closed, it meant peace had been achieved in the empire, even if it was only temporarily. But Drusus was not allowed to stay for too long. After all, Germania had not been brought under the thumb of Rome. So in the spring of 11 BCE, Drusus engaged in his second military campaign in Germania. He pushed further east into Germania, past the Vesa River, marking the furthest east into Germania the Romans had ever traveled. Along the way, he defeated the Tancteri, Eusipii, and Cheruski tribes. After deciding that he had traveled far enough to the east, and so he could make it back to Gaul before winter stalled them, Drusus turned his armies around. On the way back, the Cheruski retaliated by laying an ambush out for the Romans. And even though it was a terrible situation where many Romans fell due to the Germans' knowledge of the land, Drusus's military know-how allowed his surviving troops to break through and make it back to Gaul before winter prevented further travel. Drusus would embark on two more campaigns within Germania, but they would be under a different set of circumstances. In spring of 10 BCE, the younger of our two brothers was elected as consul of Rome. His third campaign was spent fighting against the combined forces of the Sicambri and the Cati tribes. The tribes were repelled and forced to move further southeast into the region of Bohemia. After his third campaign was the period where the Arnotrium Galliarum was completed and Claudius was born. In 9 BCE, Drusus began his fourth and final campaign into Germania. Along the way, he dedicated a temple to Augustus as the living god that he was. After the temple dedication, in spring he once more crossed the Rhine. After another round of military victories against the Cheruski tribe, Drusus pushed further east until he finally passed the Elba River in eastern Germania. 
In what was surely just ancient historians creating a better history, Drusus was said to have received a prophetic vision of a woman telling him to turn back because pushing forward would result in his death. Whether it was a vision or just a desire to head home, Drusus decided the elbow was far enough. He had a monument erected along the Elba, possibly somewhere around present-day Dresden, to commemorate his achievement. An achievement that would go on to earn him the cognomen Germanicus. But that cognomen would have to be given posthumously. In the summer of 9 BCE, shortly after the beginning of his return journey from the Elba, Drusus was thrown from his horse, being severely wounded in the process. When word returned to Rome of Drusus' situation, Augustus ordered his other stepson to immediately leave Pannonia, where he had once more been campaigning, to be by Drusus' side. Drusus' injury grew worse and turned gangrenous. Though Tiberius would arrive at his brother's side before the end, Drusus would succumb to the infection one month after his initial injury. Allegedly, just before his death, Drusus gave a letter to Tiberius complaining about the way Augustus was ruling Rome. Roman historian Suetonius wrote that Drusus refused to die within the imperial capital. Then again, Suetonius's writings should be taken with a grain of salt. His body was returned to Rome where he was cremated and interned within the mausoleum of Augustus, the same location where Agrippa was buried and the future site of Agrippa's son's burials as well. Command of the legions in Germania was transferred to Tiberius, who campaigned in the region in both 8 and 7 BCE. According to Roman propaganda, Tiberius pacified the region, though that was pretty far from the truth. However, he did almost completely wipe out the Sicambri tribe. Those that survived his attacks were taken as prisoners and brought to the opposite side of the Rhine under Roman control. Even though Augustus was still looking for a blood-related heir, Tiberius had positioned himself as one of the most powerful and successful men of the early imperial period. No doubt his mother was more than pleased with his accolades. But Tiberius himself was not entirely happy with the position he found himself in. Tiberius was elected consul for the year 7 BCE. The next year marked one of the most important years of Tiberius's life before he would become emperor. First, he was given the power of tribune. I covered what tribune powers were back in episode 25, but they were essentially a series of legislative and executive powers that made you very, very powerful within Roman society. These were powers that had also been held by Julius Caesar, Augustus, and Marcus Agrippa. And just like Agrippa, Tiberius was given rule over the eastern Roman provinces. However, 6 BCE also marked the year that Tiberius was forced to divorce Vipsania and marry Julia. But just as he was about to gain all those great powers and become the second most important man in all of Rome, Tiberius decided to withdraw from public life. He put himself in self-imposed exile on the island of Rhodes. There's no primary sources, especially none coming from Tiberius himself, explaining why he decided to do this. I've whittled it down to two completely opposite possibilities. Possibility number one. He was uncomfortable with all the power he had gained. 
based on many historical biographies, Tiberius was a pretty reserved guy who was just happy to be a soldier. Combined with the fact that he was forced to divorce the love of his life for a woman he despised all for the sake of dynasty building, it wouldn't be surprising that Tiberius was itching to get out. However, there's also possibility number two. Tiberius was upset that all of this power was still not enough. By this point, Augustus had already adopted Agrippa's sons Gaius and Lucius with plans for either of them to become his successor. Augustus had been in poor health for a while now and assumed he didn't have too much time left to live. But both Gaius and Lucius were still pretty young in 6 BCE. If Augustus were to die, power would probably pass to Tiberius, but it would only be a temporary measure until the boys had grown up. Perhaps years of Livia wanting him to be his stepfather's successor finally made Tiberius desire the position. But Tiberius was no tyrant, well, not right now anyways. He had lived in pre-Emperor Augustus Rome and knew how people would react if he tried to force the young boys out of the picture. Either way, Tiberius was no longer a man of the empire. And he immediately regretted that choice. It's said that he begged Augustus countless times to let him return, but the emperor refused. Tiberius would have to live with his decision. That all changed eight years later in 2 CE when Lucius Caesar died. Suddenly, succession plans were beginning to waver. On his wife's demands, Augustus finally gave in and allowed Tiberius the ability to return to Rome, but with one important caveat. Tiberius would relinquish all power and titles he had gained throughout his years as a military leader. He would be a private citizen and nothing more. When Gaius Caesar died two years later, Augustus was without a legal heir and all previous decisions were thrown out the window. Suddenly, Tiberius found himself not Augustus' stepson, but his adopted son and legal heir. Along with that, he was made to adopt his brother's oldest son, who had taken on Drusus' legacy as his own cognomen, Germanicus. The stage was finally set for Tiberius to become emperor, a position which, if we're to believe what he said publicly, he never wanted. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, it's a bit of a weird one. We all know that for the most part, witchcraft and magic are probably fiction, right? But how about we cover an age when people were much more likely to believe that they were real satanic phenomenon? And what would happen if we were convicted of performing such feats? Next episode, we're covering several leaders who condemned many women to die during the Salem witch trials. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.